This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to a five-part conversation with K2 Intelligence Finn on defining and building effective compliance programs. This podcast series is sponsored by K2 Intelligence Finn. In this conversation, I'm joined by Michelle Goodseer. Michelle is a managing director at K2 Intelligence Finn and has 25 years of financial crime compliance experience, which includes fraud, risk management, anti-bribery and corruption, corporate security investigation, sanctions, and AML program experience working with financial services industries and the U.S. government. She is a strong compliance professional with a focus on compliance program building, operations, analytics, and business intelligence. Prior to her role at K2 Intelligence Finn, Michelle served as Managing Director and Global Head of Anti-Bribery, Corruption, and Fraud for a European Bank, where she was responsible for enterprise risk, bribery and corruption, fraud risk management, investigations, and whistleblower programs. Joining Michelle is Gail Fuller. Gail is the Vice President at K2 Intelligence Finn. Gail focuses on developing, refining, and implementing K2 Intelligence Finn's quantitative and qualitative risk rating tools. She leads engagements focused on helping Finn's customers, jurisdictional and private clients understand their exposure to financial crimes risk and develop and implement strategies to mitigate those risks. Prior to joining K2 Intelligence Finn, Gail spent eight years in federal government service focusing on combating illicit finance. In her most recent position at the Treasury Department, she deepened her experience in topics such as global AML, CFT standards, illicit financial topologies, global sanctions regimes, and intersection between illicit finance and national security threats. In this episode, I'm joined by Gail Fuller to discuss ongoing compliance through training. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode in our five-part series. Today, I'm joined by Gail Fuller, and we're going to look at some ongoing compliance issues, specifically around training and culture. Gail, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity. Gail, training is something that the Department of Justice has really moved to the forefront for compliance practitioners, and it's around effective training and tailored training. So I was wondering, how are you advising clients, not only around those two key components, but other things that you see as key components of a successful training program? Thanks, Tom. I love that this is the first question because training really is something that's absolutely critical to any AML-CFT compliance program. And it's also something that's really near and dear to our hearts here at K2FIN. You know, if we think about what makes a training program effective, I think we have to sort of step back and think about first, what is it actually even trying to accomplish? Because, you know, it's not just sitting in a classroom and learning how what the policies and procedures say. It's broader than that. It's really trying to raise awareness of the content of those policies and procedures, but also of obligations and responsibilities that compliance personnel have. And it's designed to operationally embed compliance really at all levels of an organization to reinforce a culture of compliance, again, throughout the organization. So to do this effectively, you know, training programs should have a few different key characteristics, some of which you touched on in your question. You know, first of all, I think they need to be comprehensive in a couple of different ways. They need to be comprehensive in terms of the subject matter that they cover, and they need to be comprehensive in terms of the employees that they reach. Training needs to start really at the very top of an organization so that we can build that culture of compliance at the board of directors level and in the C-suite with the executives. 
And it needs to thoroughly cover all three lines of defense. It needs to cover the lines of business themselves, the compliance department, and the audit function. Really, every single employee in a bank needs to have at least a basic level of awareness of AML-CFT issues, and there should be a community of kind of deep experts among the compliance staff themselves. And because we want to get that comprehensiveness of covering really everyone in the bank, we want to make sure that we're tailoring our training. We have to tailor it to the audience and their roles within the institution. Because, for example, a member of the board is going to have a lot different needs when it comes to training than an auditor is going to have. So we need to think about tailoring specifically to the audience, which means having a multi-level training program that specifically thinks about the roles of the people who are participating. And then training also needs to be tailored in another sense. It should be tailored to the financial institution itself and its risk profile. If you have a major global bank that's doing dollar clearing and providing correspondent services, that's a hugely different risk profile than if you have a community bank focused on mortgage lending to clients within their community. And so there's not any such thing as a one-size-fits-all compliance training program. It really does need to be tailored. And then we talked about effectiveness. Um, can't just be a check-the-box activity. This shouldn't be a library of PowerPoint decks that just sit on the shelf collecting dust. When we talk about embedding in the compliance process, when we talk about embedding compliance in the policies and procedures and in the day-to-day processes, that's where we need to think about effectiveness. And dem- demonstrating effectiveness really comes down to things like testing and certification. Um, you have a training program, but you have to check and make sure that people are getting out of it what you need them to. So you need to think about testing them, certifying them, creating accountability mechanisms, and corresponding corrective actions. And then lastly, I think training does need to be continuous. The risk profile in the world is always changing. You know, as we've talked about a lot during this series in light of the current pandemic situation, threats and risks are always constantly evolving. And so our training needs to be as well. It needs to be continuous and it needs to be up to date. So I think those are some of the key things that we really look for in a training program to be effective. You know, one of the ongoing discussions, debates, and questions within the compliance community is what's the best way to deliver training, recognizing you may have a multinational organization of literally thousands of employees across the globe, different languages, different cultures, different skill sets, some who may have access to a computer and some who may not. How do you help organizations begin to think through the right blend of online uh, training classes, live person training classes? And if, if I can now overlay the current situation with uh, COVID-19 and the economic situation we're under. Yeah, Tom, that's a really great question. It's a hugely challenging time that we're in right now, really, truly unprecedented This is a question that's been kicking around there for in the world for a while, but it's really brought to the forefront even more right now. You know, how do we get that right blend of online and in-person training? So the regulators are pretty much neutral on how training is delivered. They care about the content and the results of the training. They don't really care about how it's delivered. And when we think about in-person and online training as our different options, you know, they both have positive attributes to them that can help organizations build a successful and effective training program with the kinds of characteristics we were just talking about. Um, Really, though, I think a blend of the two methods is probably the best um, because people learn in different ways. And because while I said, you know, they have positive attributes, each of those training channels also has sort of 
weaknesses and pitfalls that you have to work around as well. And an F, a financial institution should really think about designing a training program holistically to take advantage of the benefits of each form of training while avoiding the drawbacks. And right now, you know, as you mentioned in the current crisis, it's particularly challenging. And so if it's not possible to have in-person training, we need to, you know, but we would prefer to have in-person training for some things. We need to just make sure we're not letting sort of the perfect platonic ideal of a training program get in the way of training. Um, Training still needs to happen, um, even if meeting in person is not possible. It's very clear that the regulators are expecting business as usual in that regard to be continuing. Uh, So if we talk through kind of the pros and cons of the two different training methods, I think online training, it's great in that it can be provided pretty quickly and sometimes less expensively, especially across, as you were talking about, a globally dispersed organization. And it can also be developed to kind of quickly react to changes in a regulatory policy or to the risk environment. So developing kind of an online training that is responsive, for example, to the current situation and the current threats we're seeing. I mean, some of the downsides, though, when we're thinking about online training are trouble engaging with material and trouble engaging with the audience. I think to a large extent that can be mitigated through course design, and it's something we're thinking through a lot right now at our organization. It can be a little more challenging to engage with the audience and the participants, and it can be a little more challenging to really tell if they actually are engaged. I think to a large extent this can be mitigated, though, through course design, And this is something that we've been thinking about a lot at K2Fin recently as we've been developing our own online training platform called Dolphin. And kind of key to keeping people engaged in the online area is things like a mix of different learning modalities and finding ways to make sure that participants can still interact both with each other and with the faculty and to collaborate and work through real-world examples. If we think through in-person training, obviously it's much easier to make it interactive But it can be expensive, especially in those global financial institutions where you're talking about having people fly in from around the world. It can be logistically complicated, um, and it can take employees away from their desks and their roles for really days at a time, which sometimes isn't ideal. Um, So again, to leverage the right mix, and again, we're talking about in an ideal world where we could have the mix that we want and not in the world we're living in right now where in-person training is really a difficult thing to achieve. Um, We would think about having a preference for in-person training, in particular for new employees as we're onboarding them into their new roles, and for introductory and role-specific training, specifically for those in the second and third lines of defense, the compliance and audit functions, and then for advanced and case study-based materials where you're really trying to build kind of an interdisciplinary cadre of experts within your institution. And then we think about virtual and online training as being a good match for rule-based refreshing training or continuing education kinds of training. So again, this is in the ideal world how we think about the mix, but in the reality that we're living in right now, making it work with online training is something that we're thinking about a lot and how to make that interactive, how to make it effective. Gail, once the training is complete, how can entities and companies ensure their teams are able to report issues up through the organization? So I tend to think about this and the reporting kind of in two different pieces. Uh, The first is inward-facing and governance-focused, and then the second is more outward-facing and focused on the interactions that the financial institution has with its regulators. When we're thinking about that first group, the internal governance, what we mean is, is things like making sure that the compliance function is independent, that it's empowered, that it's adequately resourced. 
that there's a clear chain of command uh, that is appropriate uh, and that allows us to escalate things in a transparent way, and that everyone is really clear on what their roles and responsibilities in the system should be. So, you know, a particularly important component of this is the whistleblowing mechanisms and really any sorts of systems and structures that allow employees of the bank to really elevate their concerns um, with anonymity or confidentiality as appropriate. It's a key part of a compliance program, and it's actually industry best practice to have as many of three, as many as three different reporting lines in place. The first being just taking your concerns directly to your supervisor, which hopefully everyone sort of feels comfortable doing. Um, the second being through kind of those whistleblowing mechanisms I mentioned, which would be an internal anonymous or confidential way to report concerns. And the third would be through fully external reporting, like an outside law firm. Another really important piece of the governance puzzle in this respect is the need to have feedback mechanisms in place. So when concerns are being raised, even if they're being raised in an anonymous or confidential way, making sure that when appropriate, they get back to the board um, and to senior management so that something can be done about them. And so that there could be analysis done to identify when there might be patterns in the concerns that are being raised. If we shift gears, though, and talk about kind of the externally facing elements of reporting when teams are making filings with regulators, the elements of internal governance that I just talked about remain really important, but there's kind of a few other things to highlight as well. You know, we need to have processes to ensure that we're cautious, but also forward leaning on reporting. We don't want to be doing tons of defensive filing, for example, of suspicious activity, but we do want to be making sure that we're not missing things at the same time. And that's obviously a really, really challenging balance to hit. Um, we need to be making sure that we're hitting deadlines and meeting requirements, uh, particularly around the filing of suspicious activity reports. And we need to be able to have systems in place that can detect and rapidly help us to adapt if we're falling behind on our obligations. Gail, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time today, but I hope our listeners will join us tomorrow where we conclude our five-part series, where we take up one of my favorite topics, that veiled land of the future, what's next on the horizon. I uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. As do I. Thanks, Tom. I would like to thank you for joining this episode of my conversation with K2 Intelligence Finn, defining and building effective compliance programs. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. This podcast series is sponsored by K2 Intelligence Finn and is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.